Hello folks, Matthew Garnett here with In Layman's Terms. We took a couple week hiatus here, but we are back and better than ever. And I'm sure you all have been anticipating part two of our interview with Cameron Riley. You can see the full interview if you go to our YouTube channel. That's where we just we just live streamed it right onto our YouTube channel so you can see the video in its entirety. And we are just bringing you a couple of parts of that. And we very much appreciate Cameron coming on to do that. He is the writer, producer, and the host of Marketing the Messiah, which we uh, critiqued a few weeks ago. He commented on a YouTube video of ours, and I was able to get him on the program for an interview, and it was great. We actually are looking forward to doing some more with Cameron sometime in the future. Before we get to the interview with Cameron, let me remind you to go to laymanstermsradio.org. Donate to the Men of Steel Project. We do have the business proposal in hand. We'll be building a website for it. Uh, and we want we want you, our listeners, to keep donating to the project. Because at this point, you're donating donating to the guys' training to teach them how to drive trucks, so they can get out of that that prison to street to prison cycle. Uh, we're we're helping to reduce what they call recid- recidivism, which is when men come out of prison, uh, they get comfortable with with that lifestyle sometimes, and they just don't know anything else. So they figure, well, I'll just commit another crime and go back to prison where I feel at home. And we're trying to get them out of that cycle and give them uh, a, fresh, a fresh start. So please donate to the Men of Steel Project at laymanstermsradio.org and look forward to the website coming out. If you know some venture capitalists, you know some folks that are into donating to this sort of thing, we don't need a lot. It's about half a million dollars. Now, that might sound like a lot, but for uh, an investment like this that guaranteed is going to really turn a profit and be able to stay uh, afloat very easily, it's, it's not hard to make money driving trucks. If I can teach some guys to drive trucks, we can stay safe. That'll be the, a big key. Then we'll, we'll be able to do this. Uh, you know, so a, a half million dollar investment is not a lot really even for, for <laughs> in charitable terms, especially here in America. It might, you know, again, it sounds like a lot, but it's, it's really uh, not a, not a big deal when it comes to these sorts of things. So if you, if you know folks that, that have foundations or whatever else, you've got some suggestions for that. We'd be glad to hear from you on that. We'll be coming out with emails and different things that you guys can, can give suggestions to us about that. So anyway, laymanstermsradio.org. Keep donating to the Men of Steel Project and see we can get this thing going sometime before I die. All right. <laughs> um, again, we've got Cameron Riley of Marketing the Messiah. Part two of our interview Want to get as much of this in as I possibly can. Again, you can watch the video, the uh, interview in its entirety at our YouTube channel. Uh, but I don't. Uh, but I want to get as much in here on the uh, on the audio podcast as we possibly can. And so, without gilding the lily any further, here we go with Cameron Riley of Marketing the Messiah. Really know what happened. So all we can do is try and infer from what we have about what might have been going on. I don't have definitive evidence that Peter and James were behind this other community. You don't have definitive evidence that they weren't. All we could do is say, well, what seems like a realistic scenario here? To me, the most realistic, yeah, and you obviously disagree, and that's fine. But to me, the most realistic scenario here is Peter and James were sending people out from time to time to Paul's community saying, don't listen to this guy. He's a fruitcake. He's just making shit up. He didn't even know Jesus. We knew Jesus. This guy didn't even know Jesus. We don't know what's going on with him. But if you want to be part of our community, you need to do these things. Jesus was a Jew. We're Jews. This is a Jewish thing for Jews. Don't listen to this guy. That seems to be the easiest reading of this 
for me, but you know, you feel free to disagree. Well, I, I, well, I'm not disagreeing with you. The, the, the text. And by the way, and by the way, this isn't my view. That's the point of the film. This is why I had half a, a dozen PhD level New Testament scholars right. in the film, biblical scholars. This is the view of mainstream biblical scholarship. This isn't my view. I'm not a biblical scholar. Uh, you've got way more training than I do. I'm not a scholar. I just interviewed the scholars about what's the view of mainstream scholarship. Right. Well, and yeah. That's I, the view I, I of would... Bart Ehrman too, by the way. Yeah. Bart wouldn't disagree with any of that. <clears throat> I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure he would he would put put so much emphasis on, you know, th- this this is Paul's version of Christianity and Paul kind of created this out of, yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, because again, Again, I didn't say Paul created it out of thin air. Well, no, I'm not Paul's saying thin air. I'm, I'm saying his version inheriting of it is the something. One, his his version is uh, is, is the one that that prevailed. Okay, hmm. um, in, in from from your perspective, um, but again, because as we explain in the film, it wasn't working with Jews. Jews weren't buying the story because it didn't make any sense to a Jew. Well, Whatever the story was, and again, we don't even know what the story they were teaching was. Well, now time really. out. So it, it was obviously working with with Jews because all of Romans was written to Jews. The no, Christians in Rome were Jews. It was, well, it, it was written to a small community of Jesus followers in Rome. Yeah, who were Jews. Yeah, they would have been <laughs> Jews or Gentile Jews. We, I mean, if Paul's writing to them, they're probably part of his Gentile community. He's right. probably See, not it, writing to right. Matthew well, and James's okay, so community, that's, right? Okay, right. So that that's where I, yeah, I'm. Um, He's writing to his communities, not to the Peter and James communities. Well, who were probably focused around Jerusalem. They they weren't, you know, walking. They weren't going around and uh, opening new communities in places like Rome. As far as we know, we have no evidence of that. We don't know who started the community in Rome, but yeah, I'm well, assuming it's one of one of Paul's community because he's writing to them with some level of authority. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so, and again, we don't, we don't have any evidence that. But if, that oh, that, sorry. Of what? Well, that, that Peter and James were, were these super apostles or part of secretly a part of the, see that that's where it gets, cons, that's where it gets, you know, kind of, kind of woo woo wonky conspiracy theory is that, well, what seems evident from the new Testament that James and Peter and Paul Came to an agreed that circumcision wasn't required for Christian con- for Gentile converts, uh, but secretly behind the scenes, James and John were running these super apostles, and because who else would it have been? Yeah, that that sounds conspiracy theory type stuff to me. <laughs> Doesn't you know? Because well, who else would it have been? Is the question? It, you don't. Nobody knows it. What Paul? How Paul okay. describes them? How Paul describes them in Corinthians is. The reason they were called super apostles is because they were slick tongued. They were good looking. They spoke well, and evidently Paul was diminutive of stature. He might, might not have been a very good preacher. He might have stumbled over his words. And these guys were slick, and you know they were they were coming in, and and, and really the conflict there wasn't so much about their um, about their teaching, uh, but that uh, but they were trying but they were trying to compete with Paul for the for the uh, Christian conversion market, as it were. Um, and now he actually says that they're preaching another Jesus 
And he mentions uh, an Apollos too. We don't know who Apollos okay, is. Okay, so well, there, maybe but, there's okay, but so yeah, there is a faction that's teaching something different to Paul, and they're very apparently good at what they're doing. They're very convincing. Mm-hmm. The question is, who are these people and why are they so convincing? And what are they teaching? Obviously, there is something different. Right. 20 years after Jesus died, mm-hmm. there is something very different being taught about Jesus right. that conflicts with Paul's teaching. Yeah. We don't know what that is. I'm assuming it came out of Peter and James's community, but it could have been something else. You're right. We don't know. Right. But it was there, and it was a big enough deal that Paul had to talk about it constantly. Yeah, well, and, and I'm yeah, I'm not sure what what where the weight of Paul really discussing these other factions. I mean, you've got it in Galatians for sure, you've got some of it in Corinthians, <clears throat> but um, but but the rest of Paul's epistles are just him just didactic teaching for the most part. Um, those you know, while they're thematic of some books, even even Galatians, you have that piece, but but. St. Paul's trying to set that up to talk about how this is, you know, this is the gospel, not that. Okay, so so anyway, I but but you could see you you would agree that it's a possibility that J- James and Peter were not behind the super apostles or the circumcision party. It's a possibility. Sure. Okay. Everything's a possibility. Yeah. Right. Right. So um, and I've got, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm failing to to follow your. Your, your ex-Jesus here. Now, you, you mentioned um, Romans. I, I think you're talking about, when, in the documentary, you're talking about this bribe idea. Um, yep. And you, you're pulling that from Romans 15, I'm guessing? I, I don't remember the verse, man. Okay. But, uh, well, that's what, yeah, I'm just me. trying to, well, I think one of the one of the guys in the, in the film mentioned Romans, and I thought, okay, well, let's see. The only thing I know in Romans where they talk about, yeah. Um, I'll look it up. Yeah, it's the collection. Um, yeah, start Romans fifteen twenty two. Uh, now I'm going. Uh, uh, actually, twenty five. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. Have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now you're going to say, well. This is St. Paul writing, so we can't we can't really trust it. What we have to do is mistrust it and say it wasn't really money for the poor; it was a bribe to James and John. That's what that's what well, the I think, claims. I think uh, the view of one of the views of modern scholarship, anyway, is that the poor is the name of James's community. They they because they were poor, they call themselves the poor, and this is where you know it, uh, I think in. In Acts, uh, Luke talks about how they would—they were like proto-communists. They would share everything that they had. Uh, you know, they—they they didn't have any assets for themselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They were a, you know, basically a socialist uh, community. The, and then the um, uh, what was the the guys that came later? Um, the Marcionites and the Ebionites. Mm-hmm. The Ebionites called themselves the people of the poor as well. So there's a suggestion in scholarship that they may have been the surviving remnants of James's community. But yeah, I think that's what the suggestion is when he says the poor. He okay. means James's community. So so even even there, I'm I'm 
it's it's hard for me to track the logical steps to say, okay, even if even if this was James's community, this seems like an act of charity towards James's community. If they are indeed you know struggling financially with material goods and that sort of thing, um, and Paul can make these collections. Hey, let's help out. Let's help out James here. He's he, his his church is struggling, and and you get that from Saint James's epistle as well. That his you know because that's one of his main themes in his epistle is that he's got people acting better than the, you know, better than the poor people in his community. He's got rich, he's got evidently got some well-off people. He's got some really poor people and he's got these rich people, you know, in one of, you know, one of the verses is, and I'm paraphrasing is, you know, if a brother or sister comes to you and is cold and hungry and you say, you know, be warm and well-fed, um, then, you know, what good have you done? Right. This, you know, so this, so I don't, I don't know if scholars are getting, the idea that James had a poor community from there. I don't know. Um, but, but I, but again, I'm, I'm. Well, Christianity was very much, it seems to be anyway, in in the early (laughs) stages, a religion of the lower classes, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the poor, the destitute, because again, it offered them something that, you know, basically they weren't going to get in, in life. They were being told, it seems at least, if we uh, take Paul and the Gospels, that the world's going to come to an end any day now, um, and when it, if you're on the well, one of the faithful, when the end of times comes, you're going to go to eternity in paradise and that kind of stuff. So it doesn't matter if you have nothing right now and your life is sucks, you know, it's brutal. Uh, it doesn't matter because the end of times is coming any day now, and you'll be you'll be all fine. Mm-hmm. Very attractive to the poor. More maybe than the rich at the time. Right. Well, although and, there were yeah. obviously some well-off members of the community as well. Okay. Well, I, and I could see, you know, why why it might be. Um. So yeah, I mean that I don't have any major dis- disagreement with that. That would be, um, you know, that would that would be an attractive message for sure. Let me ask you what 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 do you think Saint Paul's motives were to start this faction? What's 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 the game plan here? Because it d- doesn't seem like there's a lot of upside to starting a faction of Judaism that came under scrutiny from both the Jews and and the Romans, um, and ended up with Paul's death, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know what's what 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 is motivating him uh, to to well, do this? It's a good question. Uh, that's a fascinating question. I mean, he's obviously uh, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in history uh this thing that he built uh survives and has 2.2 billion adherents today so i you know i i look at paul as one of the most fascinating characters in history but before we get onto his motivations let's get back to romans yeah. so at the end of romans uh 15 14 15 no hold on 15 23 Mm -hmm. Here we go. Uh, 25. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. Mm -hmm. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Mm -hmm. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Mm -hmm. Uh, He goes on to say, Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy. 
maybe favorably received by the people there. What's your interpretation of what he's saying there? Um, what, what verse are you in again? This is uh, 15, skip down to 1531. Okay. Um, well, you know, um, I, you know, I think Paul's just hoping that he's going to bring this contribution for the poor people and that, you know, that, that the saints there will be happy with the ministry he's doing. I, you know, I don't, I don't see the, you know, that's the plain reading of it. Um, that I, no. may be, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. Okay. That was, it's pretty clear that the Jews were, it's, you know, from, if we take acts seriously, that, that the Jews were persecuting, uh, Christian preachers, including, including Peter. Um, and so that, I think that's who he's referring to there. And that, um, that his service for Jerusalem, that, you know, this, this gospel that he has, um, you know, that he, that he refers to in verse, um, uh, 27, that he's indebted to them for, for their teaching and that, that he was a faithful servant to, you know, to the message. That's, that's really seems what he's hoping for there. I don't. I don't know what uh, version you're reading, but I'm looking at the NIV, and it says, "And that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, not my preaching, that my ser- the contribution that, my ser- that I take." Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading the which now. It sounds to me one way of well, translating that is that it's uh, a payment, a franchise, a bribe, whatever you want to call it. He's taking money to them so they will allow him to keep doing what he's doing. Like one, my way of of translating all of this is when they had this discussion about whether or not uh, he should be preaching to the Gentiles and he should be telling the Gentiles they don't need to convert to Judaism, they basically said, look, as long as you keep bringing us money, uh, it's fine. Go do what you go do what you want to do. Just you know, pay us, bring us money once a year, whatever the period is, which he did. But he says to in Romans, pray that will be looked favorably upon, so that by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy. What happened was, as far as we can tell, he went to Jerusalem with the payment. And then he gets arrested, and uh, that's it for Paul. Where, where, so it didn't go well. Where, uh, where are you getting that? That he got that he got he went to Jerusalem and got arrested in Acts. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure he's referring to that here. He might be. Well, I'm just saying this is what we know. He says, "Pray that the the contribution I take." may be favorably received so that I may come to you. He goes with the contribution and instead gets arrested and thrown in jail. Well, okay, you're going to have to show and me an ax where, where, where the contribution is tied in there. I, because he well, gets, uh, no, I he gets arrested say, in Acts the contribution tied in I mean, I don't... No, Acts, I think, from memory, says he got arrested for... Uh, by some of the people who didn't like what he was doing. Hold on. Acts, Paul's arrest. Yeah. We should have had uh, talking <laughs> notes here. That's fine. We'll, we'll fact check all this. Acts 21, 27. Okay. 
When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. Some Jews from the province of Asia. Yeah, could you could could James and Peter be described as some Jews from the province of Asia? Um, coincidence? I don't think so. Okay. Um, and when all right, so verse twenty-seven. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, I don't, I, I don't see how you could say that James and Peter were from Asia. I mean, that was a that's a pretty distinct region from Palestine. Not to the, no, not to the Romans. To the Romans, that was all Asia. Okay. Um, yeah. Crying out, Judea, kind of our aid, right? Mm. Uh, for they had previously seen Tromifi, uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. They supposed that Paul had brought him into this temple, and all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So the point is, he gets to Jerusalem and gets arrested. Yeah, for preaching, mm. not for contributing. Well, for being, it doesn't even say he's preaching. It just says they they saw him at the temple. It doesn't say what he was doing there. They just saw him there. So he says, pray that it may be well received so that I may come to you. And then uh, he gets arrested and doesn't get to go to them. It goes to Rome, though, but in chains, according to Acts. Um, yeah, so again, how we how we understand that, how we interpret that, I don't know, but it's it's a very interesting set of verses to connect up. It, it is. Um, go back to twenty one seventeen, and when and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us grad, gladly, and now the following day, Paul went with us into Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present, and after they greeted them, they began to re- relate one by one, the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Sounds pretty friendly and amicable. Sure. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they yeah. said to him, you but, see, brother, how many thousands among the Jews of those who have believed you know, and every, they're all zealous for the law? Every New Testament, every New Testament scholar, well, not every, but the main, most New Testament scholars, even Christian New Testament scholars that we had in the film will say that Acts whitewashing the tensions between the parties. That's kind of the role of Acts, is to say, oh, listen, it wasn't as bad as you may have heard. It was all good. They all got together and sung Kumbaya and drank right, uh, but it's, lemonade. But it's inconsistent to to point to twenty verse 27 and following and say, oh, well, this is what really happened. This was, you know, there was this big tension. But, you know, Five verses earlier. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't whitewash it all. But he gets arrested by someone. <laughs> they don't. They just say some Jews from Asia. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that it necessarily was James that had him arrested, but I'm saying it's it's a possibility, and it sounds like he was a little bit unsure how it was going to be received when he went back to Jerusalem. Okay, so he hadn't been there for a long time. My 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 thing is is, if, if, I mean, if we can't trust verses, you know. Um, 17 and following up to 26, then why are we trusting 27 and following to, to give us the goods? I'm not trusting anything. I'm okay. reading it all skeptically, but you know, something happened to Paul. He disappears. 
as far as we know. Like, there's nothing else. There's nothing written except uh, his uh, letter to about the slave. Um, there's nothing written after Romans. Um, so something happened to him. We know he got. He, he writes the letter from jail, right? So we know he gets arrested. Um, we don't really know what happened to him after that. We have no historical evidence about, you know, the, the goings on there. All we know is that he seems worried about how his contribution was going to be received when he took it to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and then he gets arrested. So you join the dots how you want to join the dots, but um, I think it's a possibility. It sounds like, to me, a bribe. You can translate it in another way if you choose, but it sounds something something fishy going on there. Okay. Well, what sounds fishy to me is... Why, you know, why we would trust parts of it. That's that's another kind of what was rubbing me the we wrong don't. way. We don't trust any of it. I don't. Anyway, okay. I read it all as, you know, these are these are documents, self-serving documents written by people and communities to justify what they're doing, to explain, justify. It's a narrative for the community about, you know, how did we get here? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? You know, particularly they weren't very popular when these books were being written. So, and these weren't written as books, obviously, for people to read because no one could read. These people, people were illiterate. Christian communities were mostly illiterate. They were written to, you know, to, to be spoken about in their little gatherings and that kind of stuff to educate the uh, small communities about, um, you know, how did we get here and what are we doing and what's this all about? Okay. But uh, let, me, let me go back to, and then I, if you don't mind, I want to jump to some of the stuff you guys had to say about the Gospels and whatnot. Um, hmm. uh, to Paul's motive, again, and maybe his mindset. Um, now, Airman, Airman himself hmm. will say that none of this was made up. They, they you know, especially concerning the resurrection, that, um, that something occurred. No, in fact... Sorry, this is my wife bringing okay. me. Okay, hello. Hey. How are you? Nice to see you. Hi. <laughs> That's the seven-year-old, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, cool. Well, in fact, no. Ehrman doesn't say that at all. Ehrman says uh, everything is made up. We can't believe. Like, there's not a word in the Gospels that Jesus really said. We don't know anything about what he did or what he said. The the one thing that Ehrman does believe happened. Um, but outside of that, uh, he says, we, we really don't know anything about what happened. Uh, none, none of it's reliable. Well, <laughs> well, nah, I'm not sure. Um, so if you did, you've read how Jesus became God, right? Hmm. I believe yeah, it's been a while, but okay. Yeah. Well, pull that back out. And I believe it's chapter five where, where he explicitly says that, so, so in other words, you, you would say that St. Paul made this up, created this faction, and St. Paul knew that th- this was all lies, what he was doing. And he was just um, doing this for, I don't know what. No, I, I've never suggested that at okay. all. Okay, so, so that's what I'm trying to drive at, is what, what, is, what, um, what is motivating Paul to to do all this, to take all these risks and to basically create a new religion in the Roman empire, which is pretty dangerous in and of itself. Um, doesn't seem like there was much money in it. No women. <laughs> um, he wasn't going to get famous doing this necessarily. Um, it just, it, it, 
Right. It w- wouldn't have made a lot of sense. And, and I mean, again, it, if you trust what Paul wrote, he was a Pharisee. You know, he, he, he was in pretty, pretty good shape as far as his position, his status in the community. And what, what was motivating him to do this and, and throw all that out? Hmm. Um, it, look, that's one of the fascinating questions, right? We yeah. really have no idea. Um, you know, we can speculate again. There's a range of things that motivate people. The Ebionites actually had an interesting story that they would tell. This is, you know, uh, in the second century. They believed, uh, their, their version is that Paul uh, got kicked out of the Pharisees for sleeping with the daughter of somebody powerful. Um, and uh, that's, um, and in fact, I think it happened um, in Damascus. There's a story about how he had to escape out of a window in Damascus. Their version of that story was, and this is a Christian community in the second century telling this, that he escaped because he got caught sleeping with uh, somebody's daughter. That Paul uh, then, you know, he had been, by his own admission, uh, terrorizing Christians early on. Um, and then all of a sudden he became a, a, an advocate of Christianity. The Ebionites had a version of the story was that he, you know, was sort of revenge, basically. He got kicked out of the, the Pharisaic uh, tribe uh, for playing up and had and said, I'll show you guys, I'll go join this other thing and I'll, I'll make it successful. I didn't necessarily buy that, but it's a very interesting early second century story about Paul. The Ebionites hated Paul. Um, the Marcionites loved Paul. Ebionites hated Paul. Um, but, you know, if you look at what he put himself through and why he did it, why do people do anything? Yeah, sometimes it's for money, but quite often it's not. Quite often, you know, they're true believers. Why do suicide bombers strap bombs to themselves and blow themselves up? It's not for the money, right? The crazy people do crazy things all the time and put themselves through crazy things. Uh, for a variety of reasons, because they're true believers. Maybe Paul was a true believer. Maybe Paul was having visions. Maybe Paul had an aneurysm. Maybe he had a stroke. Maybe he had some sort of psychiatric disorder. It's interesting, as we talk about in the film, when you read his epistles, he's obviously a man of very strong emotion. He rants, he raves, he's angry. He also writes things of beauty. He, He writes beautiful poetry had read out at several of my weddings. Um, You know, he wrote beautiful stuff. He also says he wants, he wishes the super apostles would castrate themselves. I mean, he's vehement, he's angry, he's violent. He's also, so he's a very complicated character. He talks about this thorn that he carries in his flesh. There's been tons of speculation about that. Was it a disease? Was it homosexuality? Was it lust? We don't really know, but he was obviously, uh, he had um, deep, deep psychological trauma and issues that he that revealed from time to time in his epistles. Who knows, man? I'd love to go back in time, you know, and, and people often say if you had a TARDIS and you could go back in time, who would you hang out with? And I'd be like, probably Paul. I'd love to hang out with Paul and go, dude, sit down, pull up a stool, you know, Tell me the story. What's going on, right. man? How well, did you get here? What's going on? Because I'd love to know. And and you might be surprised to find out that he was riding on the road to Damascus and he got knocked off his horse by Jesus. 
That, that yeah, might be but again, there are, <laughs> there are like several different versions of that story in the New Testament as well that are in conflict with each other. So uh, which version are, of that okay. story well, is Well, let's not get into that. Okay. Um, well, again, I would encourage you to go, go, go back and read Aram and how Jesus became God. I think it's chapter five or six, if I remember correctly, um, where... You know, he's he's going he's going to say that we really can't honestly say that anybody they they the, he would say Paul was a true believer that he had encounters with the risen Jesus um, is 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 what is what he's going to argue in so many words. Um, and so and I, and I think that's the most honest evaluation of, of of what we have is well hold on. Here's a synopsis of Ehrman's position. This is a blog post, 2016, written by some guy called Resurrecting, and a blog called Resurrecting Orthodoxy. He says, when it gets right, he's, he's talking about uh, misquoting Jesus, Jesus interrupted, and his most recent book, How Jesus Became God. When it gets right down to it, what Ehrman essentially argues throughout many of his books on Jesus is this. One, we don't have the original manuscripts of the four Gospels. Two, the thousands of copies that we do have all have differences. These are called textual variants. And therefore, three, you can't really trust anything you read in the New Testament because it is not reliable. That's basically the core thesis of most of his books. Okay. I, yeah, I don't think Ehrman himself would agree with that. because Aaron... Well, I do because... Okay. Yeah, that's what I got out of <laughs> well, his books again, as well. Well, um, again, I mean, so even even um, uh, you know, the, uh, so here's here's the one he wrote about how how Christianity. I got all these on audio because I'm a trucker, so I listen to these. <laughs> um, and I, I wish I had the hard copy, but I don't. Um, in, in the triumph of of Christianity, you know, he talks about um, you know how how Christianity, uh, you know, spread throughout the Roman Empire. Okay. Um, but, but again, and in, did G, if you read, if you read, did Jesus exist? He is, uh, you know, that, that's probably my favorite one of his because he, he really puts away this idea like, like Richard Carrier has that Jesus was the whole Jesus story is a complete myth. He, he complete he completely disagrees with that. And he, he, Ehrman believes we have enough from the new Testament documents to get a really good idea of what's going on. He would, he wouldn't discount the whole thing. He would discount some of it, uh, but he wouldn't discount the whole thing as as not not lending some information to us about about what went on. Um, so, I, so I think that last point, that last bullet point there, I don't know. So we can let's not argue about Airman. Who cares about him anyway? <laughs> I'm more. Hey, should... Yeah. What? Say, I'm sorry. Say that again. Oh, I said you should get Bart on and ask him what his. Views. Oh, that would be. Oh, I'd love to have him on. I don't think you you couldn't get him on your on your documentary and your your big dog. Uh, documentarian yeah. so um yeah i would love to talk to bart airman i i find he's a it was it was nice to be to sit under the teaching of one of his students at claremont uh, and really get you know some of that it, it was uh, i don't know if you're familiar with uh dennis mcdonald or not um, I know the name. he's still at claremont i think but he was yeah he was my graduate supervisor there and he's uh, he and airman have you know have conflicts because uh uh McDonald's big deal is is that the Gospels got their material from a lot from the Homeric writings, um, and uh, he in fact he wrote a text called Christianizing Homer is what he wrote about. So they they had their conflicts, but um, but yeah. So so anyway, all right. Let me ask you about the Gospels. Just a, yeah. Oh, do you just, have, just, oh, just a heads up, man. 
Yeah, yeah, I've got maybe 15 minutes and then I need to oh, go to Marimba minutes. class. Okay. So. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for letting me know that. I think we got we got some good stuff in here. Let me see what probably my like, more burning question. The, the ministry of Paul was really some of my uh, most burning questions about that. So, and And hopefully you see where I'm coming from. I'm not, you know, I'm not completely... You know, I, I, these, these, this is stuff I was forced to think through this, um, really, you know, so um, one thing I appreciated and it stung, but I think it's true that you guys bring out in the documentary is a lot of Christians don't they don't read their Bibles. They don't know their Bibles. Um, they, Which is why I like I, I love talking to Christians like you who have because yeah. you know I'm genuinely uh, interested in the topic in the subject. As I said, I find it fascinating. Mm. It's been something I've studied for decades. Um, so any and, and I'm I'm always pleasantly surprised when I meet a Christian that can have a deep discussion about it because. Well, A, Christians should be able to do that. It's their goddamn book and religion. Um, but most at it, and, and, you know, if I try to have a conversation with them, they're like, oh, I, I, I'm not interested in that. I, I, I don't care about that. I, well, whatever. And I'm like, right. yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, well, and that's, that's probably, <laughs> yeah, that's probably one reason why I, I, was, I was attracted to um, – well, the conservative Lutheran movements all but disappeared in in this in in well just disappeared. We were tiny, a couple of million of us over here. There's some in Australia. I've got a pastor friend in Australia, but he's got a tiny congregation. But these people know their Bibles. They know their they know the theology. And uh, so, well, actually, a friend of good friend of mine is a former Lutheran pastor. Oh, okay. um, and when I was starting the very early you know, year or two we were putting together the film, I would sit with him for hours and hours and hours and say, you know, we would talk about this stuff because right. he had a very good uh, knowledge of yeah. the Bible. Lutherans really know their, particularly their Paul. Yep, 100%, 100%. So, okay, all right, good. I appreciate that. Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah, the with, with the gospel, So, so there's a... So just a technical question. It seems like in some places in the documentary, you know, Paul gets juxtaposed to the Gospels. So in other words, Paul's preaching something completely different than the Gospels are preaching. Um, but then no, at the I same time... I would say that. Well, because... Uh, so I can't remember which scholar it was, but he said Paul's version of Christianity was law-free. Whereas... And then you... This is a quote from you. You say if you're... Not going to in the Gospels, according to St. Matthew, if you're not going to the temple, you're not circumcised, you're not eating kosher food, you're doing Jesus wrong. Mm. All right. Mm. So that so you even there, you juxtapose really what Paul was teaching, where all those things were, you know, those are out and in, in Paul's version of Christianity, but in St. Matthew's version, this this is this yeah. is how you do it. Well, the 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 view of scholarship on Matthew, and we we talk about this briefly in the documentary is that you know mark's gospel that most scholars think came first was uh very gentile in its perspective because he was a matthew seems to have been written later and he, he borrows a lot of mark's content i think about 50 percent of matthew was lifted directly out of mark but he he tries to re-judaize 
Jesus in it. And so he's saying, well, actually, no, we need to still obey the laws of Leviticus because we're Jews. So he's uh, he's trying to pull it back, which, you know, does seem to be trying to modify Paul somewhat, uh, significantly, I think, yeah. Okay, so 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 the question is so the question is where's Matthew getting this from that we 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 have to be Jews we can't just give up now he, it's in Matthew I think where he quotes Jesus as saying not one iota of the law will vanish until the end of time etc so um, yeah it's, Paul is, seems to be part of a community that's partly Pauline but also has remnants of this original we assume the Peter and James community, which is trying to keep it as a Jewish thing, but modified Judaism, I guess. Okay. Well, and, and again, I mean, this might lend more to your, so your contention is that, that the writer of St. Matthew, and I, I believe it was St. Matthew, <laughs> we can, we can discuss authorship. At a, well, again, that's the the view of mainstream scholarship is it wasn't so. Right. Well, and that's that. Uh, okay. So well, I, yeah. I, my question about that is, is um, uh, when, when we talk about mainstream sco- biblical scholarship, um, all of the uh, conservatives get squeezed out of that somehow. So, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't, because they're on the they're on the fringe. Fringe. Of, I mean, b- uh, the fringe what? of scholarship. Well, hmm. okay. So, what do you mean they're on the fringe of scholarship? Um, well, if they're getting squeezed out of the mainstream consensus, then they're taking a fringe well, view. Okay, are you? Well, now, now here's the thing: is you take all the seminary professors and all the divinity school professors from across the nation or across the world, mm-hmm. really, and you stack them mm-hmm. up, you're going to have more conservatives mm-hmm. than you, you are liberals, way more. <laughs> so I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm not sure what people mean by consensus, because you take all the you know the the scholars from Dallas Seminary, all of them from the the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is the the faction I'm a part of, the faction, the denomination I'm a part of here, um, et cetera, et cetera. All the conservative seminaries, which is there's vastly many more of those than the old divinity schools or the or the more liberal seminaries like Claremont. Um, so I'm the consensus. <laughs> I think the consensus is it's it's derived from reading what is being written about by scholars and when they get together for their scholarly conferences, which they do every year around the world, right. what the consensus view is at those conferences about these big questions. In all of the books that are published by New Testament scholars, what the consensus view is on mark and priority and authorship of the Gospels, all of these questions, the tensions between Paul and Peter and James. You know, there is a consensus in scholarship. And this is something that I wanted to ask you, if I can. Sure. You talked a lot in the video <clears throat> that I watched about facts being important. <clears throat> Sorry, facts and evidence being important. And one of the questions that I always have is, well, how do we know what the facts are when it comes to something like this. Mm. How do we determine what the facts are about, let's say, authorship of the Gospels? What would be your suggestion for how we... There are obviously a variety of opinions out there about authorship. How do we... What's the process by which we land on determining the facts of 
what's most likely to be true, let's say that, because we, we, we're not going to have any definitive answer here. We just don't have the evidence. But what, how do we come to a conclusion about what is most likely to be true, do you think? <clears throat> well, um, I, I think for one thing, you don't discount tradition. So St. Saint Matthew's Gospel, for instance, um, up until modern biblical scholarship, which I would, you know, say started in the 18th, 19th century area, um, you know, up until that point, there you would have been, you know, among anybody who studied scripture, it would have been crazy to, to suggest that somebody else besides St. Matthew wrote St. Matthew's gospel. And that, and you can trace that all the way back to, you know, second, third century church fathers. All right. Hmm. So that, that would be, that, that would be where the weight of evidence, uh, in my opinion would be, uh, is that we, we, you know, this, why? People also believe that King Arthur was a historical figure up until 50 years ago. I mean, does that mean he was? Well, n- no, because we can disprove that. He, we can prove that he wasn't. It's recent enough. Um, but um, We can prove that he was? Wasn't, right? But Wasn't. But, right. you, but, but people believe that he was. Okay, so. You're, you're, saying, that, you're saying that tradition trumps uh, evidence. Well, no, well, yeah, but what evidence do you have that St. Matthew didn't write, the, write his gospel? Well, if you talk to biblical scholars today, they will explain to you all of the textual evidence for why the writer of the uh, gospel, A, was writing in Greek, not in Hebrew, B, uh, has copied large portions, as I said before, like something like 50% straight out of the gospel of Mark, mm-hmm. which if you were an eyewitness, you probably wouldn't just copy someone else's version of the story. You'd write your own version of the story. There's a whole bunch of, and there's a whole bunch of dating references in it that suggest that person was writing after the events of the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, as is the gospel according to Mark. So it's obviously written way too late. In you know, I think they they tend to date Mark somewhere in the 70s or 80s that it was written um, by somebody who wasn't a Jew, who's a Gentile, who's writing this, not writing it in Jerusalem, writing it in you know, part of the extended empire. So scholarship, modern scholars have, you know, very sound reasons for believing this wasn't written by a a disciple, a Jewish disciple in Jerusalem. Okay. Well, and then, and and, and, yeah. And then on the, on the flip side of that, you've, you've, you've got um, scholars who will also say that um, there's no reason why St. Why St. Matthew couldn't have, uh, have written the, written the gospel. Hmm. So as I said before, there's a range of opinions. How do we decide which opinions are most likely to be true? Yeah. Well, again, that's, that's where I would put. So what, why is it that this tradition was, was passed down? Um, You know, what, 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 why, why would, why traditions are passed down? Yeah. Well, what, what's uh, what would be the the purpose of, you know, uh, of putting a, a pseudonym on, on a gospel? I guess would be, you know, the, the the idea there, and not 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 just go ahead and say well to tie it as to tie it as close to Jesus as possible, I guess. Right. Oh no, this this one was actually written by somebody who's there, and as you said, we I think the first uh, attribution to Matthew we don't get until Eusebius, and I think Eusebius is possibly even talking about a different gospel. There's some stuff that he says about Matthew that. I think he actually says it's written in Hebrew, which we know this one wasn't. 
So there's some issues with well, Eusebius's you're, you're, you're talking uh, about no, account. You, uh, no, Eusebius is way later than this verse gets talked about because, uh, you know, what we have from, well, is it Eusebius? It might be Eusebius. What am I thinking about? Anyway, with this, this is a quote from Papias, right? This very early about how, you know, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew was possibly written down in Hebrew and then later translated to Greek, <coughs> so on and so forth. Um, you know, I, again, um, how, how do we get to it? I'm, I'm not sure con- consensus is always uh, the best the best way to do it, because, again, I've got, you know, you know, I've got this guy. Right. He's a respectable scholar. You read this guy. Richard Bauckham, Jesus, no, and eyewitnesses. Bauckham. No. Yeah, that would be worth your time. Um, but again, the point is there's a lot of opinions. It's a bit like talking about climate change or, or right. vaccines sure. or, or any subject. There's a range of opinions. You can't believe all of the opinions, right? Yeah. So you have to, and, and I'm not qualified to decide what's correct and what's not correct. I'm not a biblical scholar. Um, so I think the the rational approach to try to decide which of these opinions is most likely to be true is to look at where the consensus is from people that are qualified, that have a PhD in New Testament scholarship, that have dedicated their lives to studying this. Uh, and what do they say? What, what do the professionals, what is the consensus of the professionals in the field? Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, the consensus of the professionals in the field, as far as I understand it, is that the Gospels weren't written by eyewitnesses or even people that knew or had access to eyewitnesses. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm, you're, I'm, feel, feel, you're, 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 you're obviously free to disagree. Right. But you have to, I think, you know, it, this comes down to your own personal epistemology. Yeah. Like you, you have to have some sort of a framework for thinking about what, who am I going to believe in this case and why am I going to believe them? Is it just, am I just going to believe the opinions of the people that agree with me, that make me feel good, that, that align with my pre existing cosmology view of the world? Or am I going to be fact based? Am I going to be evidence based? Do I care about facts and evidence or not? And this is the question I often have with Christians. Like, do you care about evidence? If you don't, then none of this matters. Doesn't don't, don't watch the documentary, don't read books, doesn't matter. Just make up whatever you want, believe whatever you whatever makes you feel good, right? right? Doesn't matter. If you do care about facts and evidence, then you have to have an epistemology for figuring out, well, what who am I going to believe and why am I going to believe them? Mm-hmm. Now, to me, it makes sense that you go where the consensus of the professionals in the field is. Okay. If you don't want to do that, I think you need to be able to explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, again, th- I have a big question about consensus, scholarly consensus, especially when it comes to biblical matters, because, um, you know, the, the, the resident New Testament scholar at the Lutheran Seminary here doesn't get included in that. His papers don't get published in those, in those journals. He, he doesn't get invited to those conferences. Um, and so for every, you know, again, numbers, I mean, if you're talking about that, his stuff gets published in, in more conservative journals, you know, all, that would be considered scholarly. Uh, but, but again, I'm, that's where I'm confused. What's because the consensus of the folks you're talking about is, is a, is a, is a certain group of people that is vastly outnumbered by another group of people who would vehemently disagree with their assessments. 
uh, of, of the you're trying to suggest that I think you're trying to suggest that the New Testament publications are all somehow uh, liberal or atheist or whatever, secular. I don't think that's the case. I think the vast majority of New Testament scholars are believing Christians, conservative Christians, but okay. they have they have a certain level of intellectual integrity where they have to go. You know, like half of the scholars in our film are Christians who teach it. Christian theological colleges and um, biblical colleges. And I had this conversation with all of them. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, we need to have the integrity to say, well, this is what the evidence points to. You know, it doesn't affect my faith because I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in, you know, God. I still believe in this, that, and the other. But I have to be honest and say this is where the evidence points about the authorship of the Gospels. Just because, you know, tradition says one thing doesn't mean that, I mean, it doesn't mean that I have to ignore the the facts and the evidence. That would be intellectually um, sloppy. Well, but the but the tradition is is part of the is the body of evidence as well. It's not. Why not? Tradition. Well, tradition isn't evidence, except of evidence of tradition. As I said, you know, people believe the world was flat. People believe the Earth was the center of the universe. People believed all sorts of things. It doesn't hold up to modern scientific inquiry, scholarship, mm-hmm. you, that plays no role in talk to a physicist about uh, the shape of the world. They're not going to say, well, there's several thousand years of tradition that says the world is flat, so we have to give that equal weighting. That's nonsense. Uh, well, no, that's. I think you're comparing apples and oranges there uh, because when, when we're looking at, at, you know, particularly something like historical evidence, you know, what Papias might have written in the first century is relevant to what we're discussing here uh, of, of authorship. Um, that's that's a relevant piece of evidence. Yeah. If you can if you can track down Papias's uh, sources for why he believed what he believed, okay, he didn't he didn't state what his sources were, and his contemporaries said you couldn't believe anything he wrote anyway. He was a crazy person. So even <laughs> other early church fathers said you can't believe anything this guy writes. He was a nut job. Okay, well, you, so, you, you again, have to point me to where, where that's stated. But um, the, the thing of it is, is that um, one issue I've, I have with this, this form of analysis is, um, is we're, it seems that one side is hyper-skeptical of everything coming out of the Christian tradition, including the scriptures, and puts, um, puts a test of reliability on it that they would not put on any other historical information. Um, I don't think that's true. I think we do that with all historical information. Okay, that's so, how we, that's so how example we track be, down history. Right. So an example would be that you say that um, Augustus Caesar was known as the son of God. Where do you get that? Mm-hmm. What, what, what we, have, uh, we have uh, surviving documents from the time. Okay, we, and uh, so the Arvel, and then, we have uh, we we have uh, you know surviving texts from the Arvel Brotherhood that call in things like that. Okay, and what's what's the what's the earliest text we have of those? Uh, I don't know, man. You'd have to get me, and I'd dig back. But um, you know, scholars uh, when they look at these things are looking at the uh, authenticity of them, even if they survive, even if they were written later. Is there any reason to believe? these have been modified in any way. In terms of the Augustus stuff, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to go back and dig through my uh, records. But 
Like we have, we there's no um, doubt uh, in the minds of historians that Augustus existed because, again, we have contemporary evidence that he existed. We have coins with his uh, likeness on them okay, and sure. the date. And, uh, you know, we have references in the historical literature to uh, what he was called. And perhaps it's even in the Res Gestae, his own last will and testament that was inscribed on the walls all across the empire and is still inscribed on a wall in in Rome today, just across from the um, mausoleum of Augustus. But, yeah, so, like, people, Christians often try and pull this thing about, well, evidence for Julius Caesar, evidence for Alexander the Great. Historians are just as critical when they're assessing these things as they are of Jesus. You know, we have far more evidence for the existence of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or uh, Augustus than we could ever hope of having for Jesus. How do you the criteria is just as is just as harsh. You only have that if you if you take all of all of the materials we have from the Christian tradition, including the scriptures, and you put them aside and say these are not these are not reliable. No, we don't. Well, we don't put them aside. We assess the reliability. I don't. Scholars assess the reliability of the sources. That's what that's what we have to do. What else are we going to do? You either trust them completely, or you take a skeptical view and try and assess the reliability of our sources. That's what historians do. Like I do, I've done lots and lots of podcasts on Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and all these Caesars, and and you know this. Whenever I'm talking about, it, I say, well, look, the sort, the earliest sources that we have say this. However. We have to think about the context in which this was written, the political context of the time, the agendas of the authors, who they like. They were saying bad stuff about Caligula and Nero. Well, that's because they were written under the rule of Vespasian and it was a change of regime and they had to write negative stuff. So we're always trying to assess the historical reliability of these documents. We don't go, well, they said it, so therefore it must be true. That would be inane. No one except Christians do, do that. No, no scholars treat historical documents as if they're, you know, facts. We, we, we look at all of them as documents written in a place and a time by a certain people with a certain agenda. That's, and then we try and figure out, you know, what might have been really going on based on what we've received. Right. It's, well, it's kind it, of the it, job. It, yeah. Right? And again, I, I'm not, uh, you, you have to discount a lot of documents and a lot of sources from Christianity to get to the point where you say we've got more evidence for X historical figure than we do for Jesus. You, you've